0: Hi folks, this is Grounded, stories of refugee resettlement in Vermont. I'm your host, Tilden Reamer-Leach.
1: In this episode, you'll hear stories like that same view, the horizon with no boats, no land, the stars above with nothing else blocking them. Um, To them, that view must have felt like the most hopeless view in the entire world. A lot of them saw their lives flashing before their eyes because they thought that they were going to die at sea. And so I just constantly had this uh, kind of juxtaposition in my brain about the sea and how beautiful yet dangerous it was. All right, so
0: today we will be looking at refugee resettlement from a global perspective and cover some of the basics about resettlement. So, when I embarked on my work with refugee issues, I had a general sense of why someone would receive refugee status, but I didn't fully understand how long the process of attaining refugee status actually takes. From fearing for your life, fleeing from the place you live, finding temporary safety, and eventually building a life in a new country, the process can easily span a decade. And on top of that, only a very small percentage of people are granted the opportunity to start anew. Amila Michanovic, director of the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program, helped me understand some of the basics of how refugees end up in our state.
2: So, um, refugee resettlement in the United States is is a federal program, which means that um, our government um, actually chooses, selects who comes to the country. Um, and for all refugees, uh, just stepping back and thinking, what happens um, globally for all refugees? The first stop is the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, who determines whether a person falls under that definition of a refugee. So who is a refugee? I think that's a really good starting point. It's it's someone who's fleeing persecution, war, or violence, and who has been persecuted by their own government, based on their religion, ethnic background. Uh, membership in in a group or political opinion. A refugee has to have, the the person has to have crossed an international border and um, in the country of what's known as a country of first asylum, they are seeking protection from the UNHCR. So that's the first step. Once the UNHCR makes that determination, um, the person can then, express their desire to be resettled to a third country. Keep in mind, um, last year, UNHCR recorded the highest number of forcibly displaced persons in the world since World War II. 65 million people. Out of that number, 25 million are refugees. Less than one percent will ever get an opportunity to be resettled. So, not everyone who expresses to be resettled obviously is resettled to a third country. The United States is just one of um, several countries who are uh, who are involved in refugee resettlement. Others include Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Scandinavian countries um, and
0: and others. I have also learned that refugees are different from other immigrant groups in that they, Number one, receive government support for the first year during their transition to new homes in the U.S., and two, refugees have little to no say in where they are placed in the U.S. Unlike almost any other immigrant group in the United States, or globally for that matter, refugees are resettled at the direction of the federal government, and While we commonly hear about refugees being resettled in new host countries, I've learned that at the UN, there's a substantial emphasis on repatriation, and many other refugees are integrated into the communities where they have fled to. In fact, the average time a refugee spends in a refugee camp is around 17 years which is mind-blowing. So it's actually a surprisingly small number of individuals who are actually ever resettled in a third country.
1: The United Nations High Commission for Refugees seeks to aid refugees by supporting three durable solutions to their displacement. Repatriation, integration, and resettlement. Repatriation efforts seek to return displaced individuals to their countries of origin through negotiations with local and regional leaders in areas of return. Integration efforts support naturalization of refugees or displaced persons in the communities to which they have fled. Finally, resettlement efforts help relocate refugees to Third Nations with formal resettlement programs that allow the refugee to become a naturalized member of that nation.
0: While it is hard to escape the never-ending news reports about the migration crisis and the waves of people trying to flee their homes by making the treacherous journey in poorly equipped boats across the Mediterranean Sea, this crisis is actually not a new phenomenon. Scholars like Jane Friedman point out that migrants have tried to cross the Mediterranean to reach Europe for many years. What is new here is the dramatic increase in the influx of migrants. Conflicts in Syria along with conflicts in Afghanistan, Eritrea, and Somalia have increased these numbers dramatically. This increase goes along with growing restrictions on legal avenues to enter Europe and tighter security at border crossing points. Also, we are now seeing a larger diversity of immigrants with many more women and children fleeing conflict. Evidently, we are now witnessing the highest levels of forced displacement on record with more than 65 million people forced from their homes in 2016. For me, it is hard to really even comprehend what this type of massive migration might look like on the ground. So I've asked Janelle Eli of the American Red Cross to share the circumstances of a few of the individuals she has met in her work.
1: My name is Janelle Eli, and I am Director of International Communications at the American Red Cross. I met Janelle at
0: UVM, actually, during the fall of 2017, when she gave a presentation about her experiences traveling on a rescue boat on the Mediterranean Sea as part of her work with the American Red Cross.
1: There's a statistic that really blows my mind, which is that every minute 20 people are forced to flee their homes and so the migration crisis is something that lots of humanitarian organizations are trying to address and red cross is one of those organizations so people are driven from their homes um, for various reasons right conflict poverty violence inequality and there are lots and lots of people who are trying to find safety by fleeing across the Mediterranean Sea. So these are migrants who were in Libya, whether they're from Libya or from other countries in Africa or the Middle East, and they've gotten to Libya. They are basically fleeing their homes and they're attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea to get to Europe. And they are crossing the sea in these very overcrowded rubber rafts and wooden boats. And these vessels, do not have proper food, water, fuel, or navigation. And usually they are stuffed full of people by human traffickers off the coast of Libya. These are really, really dangerous vessels for people to be trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea on. And actually more than 5,000 died in the Mediterranean Sea in 2016, which was the deadliest year on record. So these are people, you know, they're Syrians who see this as their only option to get out of their country. There are women who have been held in sexual slavery situations in Libya, and were forced to board rafts at gunpoint. Um, And there are other people who realize that they were tricked by smugglers from the moment they left their home country and didn't realize they'd be in this dangerous situation. They are. So, last last fall, the Red Cross deployed me for a month to be aboard a rescue boat in the Mediterranean Sea. So I was. On this boat for a month with a Red Cross team alongside the migrant offshore aid station. Our team patrolled the waters between Libya and Italy, um, rescued people who were in danger of drowning in the sea, and then cared for people aboard our rescue ship. So the Red Cross team, we had doctor and we had nurses on board who were providing medical care, and then we also provided food, water, childcare, blankets, um, basic water and sanitation uh, for the long trip across the Mediterranean Sea from Libya to Italy, which, which could take anywhere from two to five days, I would say. And so my job aboard the ship was to help with some of the relief, right, was to provide childcare and help hand out food and water and things like that, and and really comfort to people who've just experienced something really traumatic. They almost died at sea. Um, and a lot of them had experienced many traumatic things before even attempting this dangerous journey. Um, but one of my roles on the ship was to tell people's stories, was to show the American public who these individuals were that were fleeing and why they were fleeing. Right. Nobody chooses this dangerous route across the sea unless they have to, unless they're really desperate. And so one of my jobs was to understand who people are and what their stories were so that I could relay um, their stories to the American public. So aboard this boat, like I said, we were with these professional rescuers from the Migrant Offshore Aid Station and we would get up around 4.30 every morning and we would use radar and binoculars to detect unseaworthy vessels in the early hours of the morning. And then uh, once we saw that there were migrants in danger of drowning, we would take action.
0: What really struck me when I first heard Janelle talk about her experiences on the rescue boat was that because of territorial water laws, these rescue boats have to drift 20 plus miles from shore in order to be in international waters and therefore be able to lawfully take action and rescue people from poorly built boats. Her crew members would scan the blue horizon looking for boats, but wouldn't be able to take action until the boats crossed into international waters. I imagine it must have been terrible to look out at the dark blue water and know that there were people even just a couple miles away that you couldn't help yet.
1: So like many of your listeners, or many Americans, or people around the world, right? I've always seen the sea as something so beautiful. And, you know, as a place to stretch my eyes and soak in the beauty. And even when I was aboard this ship, it was just I couldn't get over the beauty of the sea. But then it was so juxtaposed with the migrants' experience, right? Because the migrants fleeing Libya, that same view, the horizon with no boats, no land, the stars above with nothing else blocking them, um, to them, that view must have felt like the most hopeless view in the entire world. A lot of them saw their lives flashing before their eyes because they thought that they were going to die at sea. And so I just constantly had this Uh, kind of juxtaposition in my brain about the sea and how beautiful yet dangerous it was. And what were some of the
0: experiences of people that you met on board the boat that had just been rescued?
1: So there are a lot of different reactions that people have when they finally find themselves safe aboard our rescue ship that we funded last year. So some are really happy and thankful. Others are still really terrified. Um, most of them hadn't had any degree of comfort for months or years. So it was pretty amazing to see the range of reactions that people had. Uh, but there were certainly some people who I really remembered and who stuck in my mind. Um, one of them was a man named Damar And he is a refugee that we probably think of often in the United States, right? We see Syrian refugees on the news a lot. And Amar was from Syria. And he had access to the internet the last couple of years. He reads and listens to the news. And Amar actually knew that trying to take the route from Libya to Europe was a really dangerous thing to do. He knew that people died at sea all the time trying to make this dangerous journey to safety, but he told us that it was his only chance at safety. He said he tried to leave Syria so many different ways, land, air, you name it, and he just wasn't able to find a safe way to to pursue a better life, and so he decided to take this trip across the Mediterranean Sea on his own will, um, knowing that it was his only chance at safety. Um, and Amar is a father, and his wife and um, child are still back in Syria, and his goal is to get them um, out of Syria and into safety. So that's that was his real goal, he said, as soon as he got to Europe. There was a woman I met named Jamila and she was from Benin and Jamila is like many migrants who had actually uh, gone to Libya to work years ago because Libya used to be a really dependable place for people from different countries in Africa to work. But once Libya fell into chaos, it became really dangerous for migrants. And so Jamila is one of these migrants who actually was kidnapped while she was in Libya and held in um, a a slavery type of situation. She was eventually able to flee that situation, and um, her friends got her onto the coast in Libya. And once a lot of people make it to the coast of Libya, they see that these are rafts and really bad boats that... Um, smugglers are trying to put them into. And so some people say, I don't want to get on there, but but once they're on the coast, they don't really have a choice. They typically have a gun uh, pointed at them by a smuggler or or um, are somehow physically forced on. And Jamila, who very likely knew that it was going to be very dangerous to board one of these rafts and boats, but her other option was to stay in Libya where she had been kidnapped and held in the slavery situation so you know she figured her best bet was to get on a raft and when she, when we saw that her raft was you know a very dangerous thing and we able to rescue her she came on board and she was just crying and crying and crying and and that's a typical response but after a while she didn't stop crying we asked her are you okay like what can we do for you how can we provide you comfort and she said these are not tears of, of sadness these are tears of joy I'm out of this bad situation and then I was at sea and I thought I was gonna die at sea and then he rescued me and I'm eternally grateful and Jamila has kids in Benin um, who she hasn't talked to for a really long time and so she said her number one goal once she got to safety was to try to um, call her kids back home and let them know that she is alive and actually Red Cross um, provides a service called Restoring Family Links in which we help people who were separated by conflict or disaster abroad we help them to get in touch with their family members so that's a service that hopefully the Red Cross in Italy was able to hook her up with and then you know another story that really stuck with me was that I met a two-year-old on board a two-year-old whose parents um, really wanted a better life for her and decided that taking this journey across the sea was really the only way to accomplish that And this two-year-old was a girl, and her name was Good News. She was so cute and had such a great name. And uh, her parents had put this little floaty swimsuit on her to cross the sea um, when they were in a raft. And they knew that this floaty swimsuit probably wouldn't provide her with a lot of protection if she had fallen into the sea or if the raft had started to go under. But they figured it was better than nothing and when we saw her vessel and went to rescue them, um, Good News was kind of in the back of the boat, and all the passengers handed her over their heads, with two hands, um, to safety. And so she was able to be um, rescued, and she was brought aboard our, our rescue ship, and she spent maybe three or four nights with us while we traveled to Europe, and she was just such a joy to everybody on board who needed some smiles. And we asked Good News' father why... He decided to take this journey and he just said, she's so smart, I want better for her. And he just knew that the way to give her the life that he th- thought she deserved was to get her out of their home country.
0: It is clear from Janelle's stories that these people fleeing crisis have huge odds stacked against them. Yet they have no choice but to leave their homes. While we hear a lot about the treacherous journey migrants face, little is said in the media about how these experiences of migration can have different challenges for males and females. Like the woman Janelle mentioned, who was kidnapped while in Libya, I learned that there are often gendered forms of violence during the migration journey and gendered divisions of labor and distinct power relations based on gender, once migrants settle in refugee camps. The article, Engendering Security at the Borders of Europe, Women Migrants in the Mediterranean Crisis, by Jane Friedman, and the article, African Women Refugee Resettlement, a Womanist Analysis, by Badiha Hafeji, both talk about this issue. I learned that to begin with, women often have a harder time fleeing their home country because they often are the ones responsible for child care and they're often not the breadwinners of the family and lack those economic resources that are needed to migrate in some countries women are restricted from traveling alone within the country and outside of it making it even that much more difficult to flee. Finally, not to mention that women are more likely to be recipients of sexual and other violence along their journey to safety. Once families arrive in refugee camps, there is a whole other set of gendered expectations and customs that women often have to adjust to. According to Badiha, Food and other basic supplies are often distributed to male heads of households, leaving women, especially female heads of households, marginalized. Refugee camps are often crowded spaces with very little privacy, and it can often be particularly challenging for women. For example, lack of sufficient sanitary facilities can leave women feeling exposed And in Friedman's research, women rarely left their tents after dark to avoid unwanted attention. Badaya also mentions that seeking appropriate mental health services and sharing their stories is often very challenging for women. For example, in Somali culture, there is no cultural context to deal with the trauma of sexual violence. Due to traditional customs prohibiting discussion of sexual matters, In group counseling, Somali women often talk in the third person about themselves. But all this is not to say that women are just passive victims without any of their own agency. Many women feel relieved once they are sheltered in refugee camps, having escaped family violence and constraints in their countries of origin. There are also many recorded instances of women being the ones more likely to request medical and psychological help because their husbands are constrained by gendered roles around masculinity and vulnerability. Aside from gender issues, to gain a better sense of what life is like once migrants reach countries of first asylum, I spoke with Julia McNally, a local Burlington resident, who made a short documentary film about a refugee aid station in Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, when she traveled there in January of 2016. The uncertainty of when the bordering countries would allow refugees passage was a constant fear for the individuals she met there.
3: Well, yeah, my experience was kind of interesting in that regard because it was this, I mean, things were always changing. like. Every few days, there might be different news from the border. The border is now closed to everyone for the day, maybe to catch up with quota, you know, like because too many people were crossing. Or Afghanis can't cross on this day for some reason, you know, and um, it was just, you know, it's kind of a mess, basically. Um, And so while I was in Belgrade, I was working with just like a day center that had coffee and tea and food. Um, medical assistance, bathrooms, and clothing. Um, so people could come during the day and just kind of like have a safe place to to spend their time. It began as a shelter for people who were coming in um, when they could still cross the borders into Europe. It began as a place where they were coming in on buses from the south of Serbia, and then they were able to like wait until their buses or trains left For the Croatian border but because a lot of the groups of refugees that I was in contact with were no longer able to leave Serbia it kind of just became a place where they were spending all of their time kind of every day because they didn't have anywhere else to go.
0: Julia traveled to this day center in Belgrade after talking to a Serbian friend at a film festival in LA who mentioned how much things had changed in the city over the last year. They, along with another friend, put their heads together and came up with this film project.
3: Yeah, so um, our goal was to provide sort of a different, um, this is coming from two people who had never made a documentary film, by the way. And (laughs) um, our goal was sort of to provide a different view on um, maybe just like a more personal image of, people who were sort of represented en masse in the media, like being in the United States, we're reading a lot about the refugee crisis, but it's rare to come in contact with resettled families here because the resettlement process takes so long and so few are admitted to the U S. And so you're really just seeing pictures of hordes of people like, you know, children there's, there's sort of like images of horror and tragedy and sadness. Um, But you don't get a lot of, I guess, um, personal details because that's just not really what was being reported on. Um, So I guess we were sort of hoping to get to know people and to hear whatever stories they could share with us and to, like, maybe make a contribution to humanizing the idea of refugees, and specifically refugees from Muslim countries um, in the United States. Like
0: many projects, Julia and her friend went to Belgrade with a lot of unknowns about who might be there at that moment in time and who might be willing to talk.
3: Um, And a lot of people wouldn't want to talk to us because They felt that they had been let down by media before because, you know, the media was all over the refugee camps. We saw people from different organizations with cameras sometimes every day, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And if there was a refugee who spoke English, they would have to give so many interviews. And so some people spoke to us and they were like, you know, they always promise us that they're here
0: to help, but we're still here and they've done nothing for us. So many of the people... Julia ended up talking to and getting to know her fellow volunteers at the day station who worked alongside her, handing out clothes and warm cups of tea.
3: There was a volunteer from Israel and one from Iran and one from Tunisia and one from Syria. You know, like, so there's all of these people really coming together from different backgrounds and like, you know, historically Israel and Iran are not, friends diplomatically as countries, but just to see two volunteers come together in order to serve another population at need and put aside the differences of their countries to become like really good friends was really beautiful. I think that what really stands out is this deep desire that was um a lot like Abdul Rahman, who's the Syrian refugee that we spent a lot of time with and he became a close friend. He really talked about peace a lot like some of our footage with him is just like you know a a long plea for peace in the world and peace in syria um and another really remarkable refugee turned volunteer that we met was this man kamar from pakistan and he left pakistan because he was part of a um like a minority Sect of Islam that wasn't recognized by their government. His family had been really persecuted by police there. And so he ended up leaving. And he has like this absolutely devastating story of like he was in Austria for a while, but then he was deported back to, I think, back to Serbia, where he stayed for a while until he ended up going to Austria again and then he got deported again to Bulgaria which is one of the worst places to be a refugee because they have like absolutely no aid. But um, he really talked about like peace and tolerance as well. And I think the thing that was really remarkable was seeing, especially those two individuals because we spent so much time with them, um, you know, they had been through trials and tribulations and you know total trauma during their own journeys but they were able to really be like loving to people and to serve them even even though i don't know it's not always easy and their own lives weren't always stable but somehow being able to overcome you know what you're still going through in order to help others who are in the same or worse positions was a really amazing thing
0: to witness sometimes it's really striking how arbitrary country border delineation scene and from Julia's story of Kamar I can't imagine how frustrating and destabilizing it must be to be deported from one country to another talking to Julia it was really clear how ineffective type border control is at keeping people out really it just leads desperate people to search out increasingly dangerous ways of crossing borders That's why there's so many cases for safe passage, I think. And I
3: know that it's more complicated than saying that everyone should be allowed across the borders, but I'm just saying like, I think it's important to realize that closing borders, um, especially like with really harsh immigration policies, doesn't keep people out. It just makes them seek much worse, more illegal, more dangerous and more inhumane ways of, of crossing borders. Because human migration is like the history of life. Like if you think about how anyone has ended up where they are, it's because of, you know, ancient nomadic tribes, which then became civilizations, which then conquered other civilizations, which then, you know, became pilgrims or whatever. Like human migration is the story of life. So it's always going to happen. And, you know, how do we want to facilitate it? I think it's a good question for the current time which is hard to answer. I completely
0: understand, but it's important. Hearing about Julia's experiences talking to people at this aid station, she emphasized the importance of simple gestures, like a smile or handing out a cup of hot tea as a way to engage with people who have just gone through traumatic experiences.
3: This is simple, but... It's good to remember to just like hold space and to like, you know, kind of just remain receptive for what someone is sharing with you without trying to meddle and to comfort and to apologize and, you know, to make them feel better or feel differently. Because sometimes there is nothing you can do about like the trauma that someone has gone through, but just being there and like being open to listening is a, I think, as much as you can do at times, unless you're a lawmaker or like an immigration lawyer or someone who who really can, you know, provide that kind of service. But if, if that's not your specialty, then listening is a great service.
0: Talking to Julia and Janelle gave me a much more realistic sense of what it's like to leave everything behind and try to pick up the pieces day by day. After all, Any one of us could become displaced at any time. Living in the U.S., though, the huge influx of migrants into Europe and elsewhere still feels very far away. It is hard to know how to make a difference. Janelle did mention a few ways we can help locally, though.
1: When I returned from this month aboard this rescue ship, the Red Cross, A lot of my family and friends, whether it was in Washington, D.C., or Vermont, or Ohio, they said that they felt helpless. And they said, wow, I'm glad you got to do something. And you know what? I'm glad I got to do something too. And I'm really glad that the Red Cross gave me the opportunity to spend a month aboard this boat helping people. But what I wanted to say to my family and friends, and, and I hope I did say to some of them, was that There's absolutely a way that that they could help too. You know, we're not helpless in the face of all these crises that are going on in the world. There are lots of ways to help refugees, whether you're on a rescue ship or whether you're in Vermont or Ohio or Washington DC or wherever. And one of the ways people can help is by volunteering, right? They can volunteer with a local resettlement agency or a local agency helping resettled refugees in their own community. Because people need help navigating their new lives in the United States.
0: And in the next episode, we'll be looking more closely at refugee resettlement in the US and the various government systems and independent organizations that are set up around the country to support refugees. listening today and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week don't forget to like share or comment on this episode I always appreciate your feedback
3: this podcast was created and produced by your host Tilden Riemerleach The intro music for the show was created and produced by Edward James. The production of this show received funding from the University of Vermont's College of Arts and Sciences Apple Award and the four mini grant. Other music featured in this episode includes Gone and State of Mind by Audio Binger, Slow Motion by Ben Sounds
0: and Enthusiast by Tours.